So we are in the short rows, 15 and 16, and we'll move on. So here we go. Today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul writing to the Corinthian church says this, beginning in verse number 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Well, all of us have that someone or those somebodies in our life that with their lips they profess to be believers but with their lives, they are saying something totally different. And here's what we do with those people. Normally, we will try to slip in the gospel in some way in most every conversation we have with them because really, the way they are living hasn't convinced you that they really grasp the gospel or not. And it's interesting that that's what Paul does here for these 1 Corinthians. In verse number 1 of chapter 15, he says, Now, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. Now, it's interesting that Paul senses the fact that he needs to share the core components of the gospel again with this church. And why does he feel that way? Well, obviously, it's because the way they were acting. I mean, we just came out of an intensive look at the things that were going on in Corinth in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, especially as it relates to the expression of all these charismatic gifts. And there was such a discombobulation and confusion down there in the church until Paul senses that he needs to lay out the basic components of the gospel of Jesus Christ again for them. So really the question that he is asking for them is the gospel which you guys embraced, was it the real deal? Because I'm not seeing its effectiveness in your life. Because make no mistake about it, if the gospel is anything, it is 100% effective. Now, Paul says to them, let's really go back to square one. And this is a classic Vince Lombardi move. 
You remember what Vince Lombardi did to the Packers after they were embarrassed on a certain Sunday? He went into the locker room the next Monday, held up football, and everybody knows his speech. What did he say? Gentlemen, this is a football. And that's almost what Paul does with the Corinthians. He says to them, this is the gospel. Was it effective or was it ineffective in your life? And notice the words that he uses here. I want you to see these two words because they're important. Do you see in verse uh, number verse number 2 where Paul says, unless you believed in vain. And then again in verse number 10 he uses the same word. He says, and, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. I think a better definition of that word that's used behind the word translated vain is effective. Because what Paul is saying is, unless you believed without the ensuing results, unless you believed and that belief proved to be ineffective in your life. So I want to speak to you today for the time that we have on the same subject that Paul addresses here. And it really is this subject, an effective or ineffective gospel. Notice what it is that Paul does here as he approaches these Corinthians. He gives them basically a rapid fire list of things that will take place if the gospel has been effective in your life. And then he puts in a conditional sentence. Now notice what the conditional sentence is in verse number 2. He says this, If, underline that word, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's employing here a literary device which is quite common in Scripture. It's where an author will give a list. He will give this, 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 and then he will give one that really stands out that doesn't fit the list. And here's what he's saying literarily. He's saying the one that I want you to pay attention to is the oddball. I want you to pay attention to the odd man out in this list. And here's, here's how it works. If I had my, my whiteboard up here and I had a yellow marker in my hand and I drew 12 yellow dots successively on the board and then I took another colored marker and right in the middle of those yellow dots I drew a black dot. Which one of them would your eye naturally gravitate towards? It's going to gravitate toward the black one. And you see, that's the literary effect that Paul is giving us here as he puts this list together. So what is it that Paul is saying to us? I want to frame what we are looking at today around two major movements, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 3 through 11, I think is the natural breakup of this passage. So here's what Paul is saying about an effective or ineffective gospel. Number one, he's saying that an effective gospel cannot be ignored for long. Cannot be. So, you know, here's the way we operate, it seems like, as human beings with feet of clay. I mean, it seems that there are times in our life where we're extremely fruitful, and then we go through a season where it's like a drought. So it's not that 
in those seasons of drought, we are to doubt the effectiveness of the gospel in our life, but we are to understand that those seasons of drought are not intended to last for long. So an effective gospel, no matter what else you say about it, it cannot be ignored for long. The good God of heaven will bring somebody to remind us again of the basic components of this effective gospel and get us back on a path where we're having fruitfulness and effectiveness in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, look, the gospel is effective. And that's what Paul is going to do as he points out these next few things which he paints three of them in yellow and one of them in black. Notice what, what, what the gospel will be if it's effective. Paul begins to enumerate them. Here's what he says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... Man, what a shame, huh? What a shame. I can't help but laugh. I mean, just what? Just what if you were having lunch with an old friend today that you haven't seen in five years and he shares the gospel with you over lunch? What does that say about us? If somebody who walks with the Lord begins to share the gospel with us because they're treating us as if we're a lost person. And that's exactly what it is. You can't help but laugh at it a little bit, huh? I mean, that's exactly what Paul is doing to that bunch down there in First Baptist Church of Corinth. He's sharing the gospel with church members. And look, it may not be too far-fetched of an idea because one of the things that Billy Graham said at the end of his ministry was this. He believed that 80% of church members had never had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ that issued into their salvation. My goodness. Maybe Paul is on to something here. Maybe the place where evangelism ought to take place is right in the middle of the local church. So Paul begins to make known the gospel to them. And notice what he says about this effective gospel. I think the first thing he says about an effective gospel is it will be received or rejected. Received or rejected. Now notice he, he, he emphasizes the reception part here with the Corinthians. I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you which you also received. Now what does it mean to receive the gospel? It means not only to embrace it, but it means to take it into the core of who you are so that it begins to transform you from the inside out. You see, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. The gospel, when it gets into the core of who we are, it begins to change us from inside outward. And Paul says this. He gives them the benefit of the doubt, saying, you know, when I preached this gospel, you received it. But now wait a minute. Have you ever known anybody who responded eagerly to the gospel, but wasn't long after that they just fell off and lost interest? And you know, that's kind of what the gospel does. Hey, the gospel is effective. And it's going to either get into the core being of people or it's going to repulse people. You know, here's the folk I worry about. Listen to me. I don't, I, I, naturally, I don't worry about folk who embrace the gospel. Their life has changed. It's effective in their life. They are who they are by the grace of God. I don't worry about them. Really don't worry a whole lot about those who come and the gospel immediately offends them 
and they have nothing to do with it and never come back because that's part of the effectiveness of the gospel. Did you know that? Here's who I worry about. I worry about those people who try to straddle the fence and who try to keep one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Those who are kind of half-hearted. Because you see, that's, that's really theoretically impossible. Because the gospel, an effective gospel, is going to do one or two things. It's either going to be effective in your life because it draws you in and gets into the core of who you are, or either it offends you, repulses you, and you run off and have nothing to do with it. But man, how many folk are there today who fit this same category that will say, yes, I'm saved, but the gospel appears to have no effect in their life. It seems to be without results because they still are the same old person they've always been. And Paul says that's categorically impossible because grace will identify you in another way. Check out what else he says. An effective gospel cannot be ignored for long. It'll be received or rejected. You will stand or fall. Now check out what he says right there in verse number uh, in, in, in verse number 1, in which also you stand. Now, I realize he's talking about here the sphere of grace, that we stand completely within the realm of grace, but you can't overlook that Greek word stasis, which means you stand. You stand. You stand. You know what that means? That means very few things have the ability to make you fall. You are almost stalwarted against it because the gospel, part of the effect of the gospel, is it causes you to stand, not fall. It causes you to stand, not waver. It causes you to stand. And listen, it's not because you're a strong person. It's not because you're a good person. It's because the gospel is effective in your life. Did you hear what it was that Robbie read this morning? Now unto him who is able to make you stand. Friend, listen, if our gospel, whatever it was that we received, isn't strong enough and effective enough to stop us from vacillating by every wind of doctrine that blows across the face of the planet or to cause us not to fall every time something better looking comes across our path, then by golly we have to ask ourselves, have we really received an effective gospel? Paul says, this gospel is effective. It'll be received or rejected. You'll stand or you'll fall. And then notice what he says next. He says, you'll be changed or you'll stay the same. I mean, there's really no two options here, are there? Look what he says, how this comes through in verse 2. By which you are, and here it is, it's a present continual action verb, and it can be translated like this. Some of your translations may do it. By which also you are being saved. He's not talking here about justification. He's talking about the ongoing process of change that an effective gospel makes in the lives of its adherents. I mean, it just does. It changes you. Not just once and for all, but it changes you continually because our thought processes are constantly challenged by the truth of God's Word. We're having our mind renewed 
in the Word and through the power of the Spirit, we are always in a process of being changed from one image of glory into another, being made into the image of Jesus Christ. He says, so here's what's going to happen. If you've embraced an effective gospel, by golly, you will be changed. And you know, you have very little to do with that. Did you know it? It's the gospel within you. That's what it does. It changes. If it doesn't change, it doesn't do anything at all. If it doesn't change, it's not an effective gospel. So Paul says, hey, you will either be changed or you'll stay the same. There's no such thing as being a believer and staying like you are. Remember what everybody used to write in their annuals, their yearbooks years ago. Don't ever change. Stay the same. <laughs> and by golly, I think a lot, of, a lot of believers are living by that philosophy, or a lot of so-called believers, because there's never any progression spiritually. There's never any progressive sanctification that takes place. When Paul says this effective gospel, if you receive this effective gospel, you are being presently changed. Check out what else he says in verse number 2. If you hold fast to the word which I preach. Now remember, this is the one dot that's in black. Okay? So this is the one that Paul wants their eye to be drawn to. It's that conditional sentence. He's saying, all of this has been effective in your life if you meet this one condition. And what is the condition? Here it is. If you hold fast to the word which I preached. So here's the last thing. If you've received an effective gospel, you will hang on or you're either going to let go. There's no middle ground. It's going to be one of the two. Now Paul is saying here, every one of these things which I've just enumerated, and let's start in verse number 1, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, all of this is predicated. And all of this is contingent upon this one black circle that he draws in the middle of the board, if you hold fast to the word which I preached. And you know why you hold fast? Let me tell you why you hold fast. Stand up, Ben Wilson. Here it is right here. You hold fast because by golly, he's got you just like that. Huh? He has apprehended you, Paul says in Philippians. Nothing can separate you. Nothing, he said in the Gospel of John, can take you from his hand. So you're holding on because by golly, he's got you. And an effective gospel does just that. Thank you, Ben. I didn't even hit you today, huh? Colin's a little bit mad because every time he has to stand up, it has to do something with being punched. <laughs> Paul predicates their salvation on this one condition. If you hold fast, if you remain faithful, and again, that's not works. By golly, this is what the gospel does in our lives. And he's going to continue to show that. Notice what else he does is we turn the corner and get into verses 3 through 11. An effective or ineffective gospel. Paul says an effective gospel can't be ignored for long. But number two, he says an effective gospel will have primary importance in life. Primary importance. Look what Paul says. Check this out in verse number 3. He comes right to shoot and says this. 
For I delivered to you as of what? First importance. As of first importance. And look what else he says. What I also received. And then he begins to give us the core basic components of the gospel message. And by the way, you know, last week Paul said, I'd rather speak five words with my mind that are intelligible than 10,000 in a tongue that nobody can understand? John Wilson asked this question in Grace Group. If you only have five words to say, what would those five words be in church? I think Paul answers that question for us right here in verse number 3 because notice what he says. He says, Christ died for our sins. Woo! That's a pretty strong five, isn't it? And Paul says that is of first importance. So an effective gospel, here's what Paul is saying. An effective gospel is going to have the place of primary importance in the life of those who have received it, in those lives in which it found lodging, and where it's at the core of their being, changing them from the inside out. It's going to be a primary importance. You know what that means? Let me just say this. It means this. It means there's no, there's no question about what I'm going to do today. What I'm going to do today is going to be in accordance with the gospel and I'm going to be faithful to God's word. I don't let decisions be made as they come up. Here is a preformed, premeditated decision. I'm going to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to hold on because he's holding on to me. It doesn't mean... Any little thing can knock me off the path because I'm standing in this gospel that I've received. So check out what it is that Paul says. Why is it that an effective gospel will have the, pri the place of primary importance in life? I think number one, because of its radical proposition. It's radical proposition. Here's why it ought to have number one, the place of number one priority in our lives. Notice what Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Now, here's, that, here's the radical proposition. The radical proposition is that he died a substitutional death. Man, just stop and let that sink into your mind for a minute. That God, before time ever began had a predetermined plan by which he himself was going to step out of eternity into time, into his creation. He was going to take upon himself the form of a man, of a servant, and he was going to die a horrible death on the cross in your place and in my place in order that we could have a relationship with him. Son, that's radical. Do you hear me? That is radical. That's why there was one great missionary who said this. If it's true that Christ died for me, then there's nothing too big that I can't give for him. If he gave his life for me, what should I hold back from him? Man, that's a radical proposition that God himself 
would come and die in your place and in my place. Notice what Paul says. He died for our sins. Do you what he did on the cross? It's what's known as substitutional atonement. That means there is no other way that sins can be forgiven except by what he did on Calvary's cross. You know, here's the problem with every religion known to man. It does not give a solution to the sin problem that you were born with. It does not. No religion offers a solution for it. The only truth system that offers a solution to the sin problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it took nothing less than God in the flesh dying on Calvary's cross for my sins. Thank God He paid a debt He did not owe because I owed a debt that I could not pay. So any truth system or supposed truth system that does not embrace the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary's cross is false. And friend, listen to me. There's a ton of religions out there flying under the radar, but they deny that very component of the gospel. And this is a crucial component to the gospel. This is not just a, a, a side margin or a sidebar. The very heart of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And there's no other way to be saved except to embrace what He's done for us. Now check out what Paul does here. He gives us a statement, this radical proposition that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Because by the way, all the Old Testament points to that. So that's what he's talking about. And then look, then he gives evidence that he died, that he was buried. You don't bury live folk, right? He really died and was buried. Now look at the next thing he did. Not only did he die a substitutional death, but verse number 4 says he did a supernatural deed. And what is the supernatural deed? Well, Paul gives it for us. He said that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. Raised on the third day. Man, that's, would you agree with me that's a supernatural deed? Huh? You ever been by the cemetery up the road here and seen anybody get up? Have you spent a lot of time up there anticipating that? See, it's not going to happen until the eastern sky rips open and he steps out and says, my people come forth, right? And, and it won't be no secret then. You won't have to worry about if you're there looking or not. It's going to be obvious. But, hey, dead folk just don't come back to life. But Paul's saying, here's the proof. Here's the proof that he is who he says he is because death couldn't hold him. Could not. How in the world... Can death hold on to somebody if they don't have a handle that it can grab? And the only handle that death has is sin. You know why you're going to die? The wages of sin is death. That's why everybody since Adam have died, right? You know, with the exception of Enoch maybe, Elijah, but you know, we're way outside the norm. Everybody in my family's died. <laughs> huh? Well, I bet everybody in your family's died too. And guess what? You're going to die also because sin has a grip on us. 
But thank God, this effective gospel is one day even going to undo that. And Jesus is going to say, get up. And by golly, your body's going to get up and you're going to forever be with him. I'm telling you, he did a supernatural deed. That's evidence of who he is. Now, notice what it is that Paul does after that in the rest of these verses. Number one, he talks about why the gospel has primary importance in the life of a believer. Number one, because of its radical proposition. But number two, because of its gracious power. Hey, it's all by grace that any of this happens. Paul closes with that. Did you notice how he started talking about grace in verse number 10? That kind of predominates this section as the concluding remarks. So we've got to back up and let grace pervade everything that he says prior to that from verses uh, uh, 5 all the way down to verse number 10. So notice the gracious power of the gospel. And by the way, oh yes, it is effective and it does have power. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, check out, because now he's given evidence. You know, just like the evidence of his death was that he was buried, now the evidence of his resurrection is that he was seen by credible witnesses. So notice what he does. Is he, and, and man, these people that he pull out, pulls out here, I think, they're, I think he did that strategically. Why did he pull these people out? Because they give us an idea of the gracious power of the gospel. So notice the first one he pulls out is Cephas. What do we better know him as? Peter. You're right, that's Peter. So here is the gracious power of the gospel that's demonstrated in the life of Peter. It has the power and the ability to transform the cowardly into the courageous. Here's what happens. When somebody receives the gospel, has a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins according to Scripture and was buried and rose again on the third day according to Scripture. What happens when we receive that type of effective gospel? Well, it transforms the cowardly into the courageous. Now you remember old Peter. I mean, he was rough around the edges like all of us, but scared of his shadow. I mean, you remember how they were huddled around in a room after the crucifixion thinking they were coming to get them next. They were scared. But, uh, Peter wouldn't even confront a little slave girl who came up to him and said, Wait, I know you. You're a Galilean. You were with him. And Peter vehemently denies it to the point of cussing because he was scared even of a slave girl. Would you agree with me that he was demonstrating cowardly behavior? But son, guess what happened? After Pentecost... After the gospel took root in his life, Peter stands up in front of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful court in the land, puts his long bony finger right in their face and says, you by wicked hands have crucified him. And son, he became courageous. Enough even to go to jail. Enough to be beaten for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't tell me this gospel's not effective. Hey, Peter was just one of us. You know what I'm saying? He was just an old rough around the edges redneck. And if the gospel does that in Peter's life, man, you can expect it to do it in your life as well. Check out this next group that he talks about in verse number 6. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Man, there was a large crowd. So here's what he does. Here's what his transforming power does. 
His transforming power not only turns the cowardly into the courageous, but it also can turn a crowd into a church. Huh? I mean, here were 500 people. Do you know how hard it is to get 500 people on the same page, living toward the same goal, and focusing on the same mission? But that's exactly what these folks did. Hey, it gives us hope, right? Huh? It really does. I mean, you know the old expression, you get 10 Baptists in one room and you got 15 opinions there. Huh? So how in the world can folk at Grace Church, all of us agree on one thing? Because the effectiveness of the gospel. That's how. I mean, it took 500 ragtags, met him on a mountaintop. And I bet those were some of the same ones who were swept into the church on the day of Pentecost when Peter was courageously preaching the gospel out in the open even though he was told not to. And guess what these 500 people were responsible for doing? Getting this fledgling message of this effective gospel message around the world. My goodness. Hey, Grace Church, there's hope for us. He did it for them. He can do it for us. He can take a crowd. And by the way, have you ever noticed the people whom God's attracting to Grace Church? Son, we come from different walks of life. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different educational makeups. We come from different cultures. We come from different parts of the country. I mean, we've even got a couple Yankees here. And that's not the worst. <laughs> we got a whole bunch of rebels here, huh? <laughs> Look at here. We are all so different. It's the effectiveness of the gospel that calls people together for the same purpose. Gets us on the same page. Striving for the same mission. Having the same priority, importance in our life that's what puts us together, is it not? Man, if it's anything other than that, guess what? It's not going to last. But I want to tell you, when we've got the gospel in the primary place of importance in our life, it don't matter what we have that's different about us because we've got more in common than we ever will that separates us. And that's the transforming power of the gospel. That's an effective gospel. Check this out. Look what he said next. These, these other people that he called into the witness stand. By the way, I should have held this till next Sunday. This is a pretty good Easter message, ain't it? Huh? Well, let me just stop and we'll be dismissed here and I'll save the rest of it. <laughs> here we go. Notice what else. Look at the gracious power of the gospel. Transforms the cowardly into the courageous. Transforms a crowd into a church. And it has the ability to transform the critical into the crucial. Now let me show you this. Notice what it is that Paul says here in verse number 7. Then he appeared to James. Now, unanimous agreement as about who the identity of this James is. It's not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, that were the fisherman. He's probably already been killed. No, he hadn't already. He has already been killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. This James right here is the son of Mary the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, why should you expect your family to be supportive of your spiritual endeavors? 
because Jesus' family wasn't supportive of his. Do you know that? I mean, some of his harshest critics came from his own family. Now, let me show you this. Look with me in John chapter number 7, the Gospel of John in chapter number 7. We'll spend a little time connecting the dots on this one. John chapter number 7, right up at the first of that chapter. <clears throat> Notice what it is. Here he's, Jesus is in Jerusalem at a feast, and his brothers come to him. Now, we're not talking about brothers spiritual, but we're talking about his half-brothers, sons of Mary. All right, so here we go. Look in verse number 3. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your work which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now stop right there. They were being sarcastic and facetious, trying to draw him out. How do I know that? Because look at the very next verse. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, James was in that crowd. And James was transformed by an effective gospel sometime after the death of Jesus from being a critic, from being critical. Man, you know anybody that's critical? Just gripe and complain. You couldn't please them if you hung them with a new rope, my daddy used to say. never understood that. <laughs> But nonetheless, just, just ate up with a critical spirit. Hey, here's what they need. They need an effective gospel. Because the only cure for a critical spirit is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look here. It changed James from being a critic to being crucial. Now let me show you what happened to James. Hey, when James got saved, he wasn't just one of those casual guys. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he didn't just tack Jesus on to the rest of his ambitions in life. No, sir. This became the reason for my life, the reason for my existence. The gospel holds a place of primary importance in my life. And let me show you how I know that. Galatians chapter number 2. Notice the transformation that took place in James. By the way, Galatians is one book over from 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 2. Check out what it is that Paul says in verse number 9. Are you there? Say yeah. You, if you're not, say no. <laughs> All right, I'm going to delay a little bit, waiting for the nays to, to become yays. Even Jesus can transform you. <laughs> he can turn your nay into a yay. Let's see if he did it already. Are you there? Say yay. Let me help this Yankee up here on the front row. <laughs> All right, you there, Jamie. Here we go. Check it out. Look in verse number 9 of Galatians chapter 2. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, here's our man, James and Peter, Cephas, and John, who were, who were reputed to be half-hearted, once-a-month attenders at the church in Jerusalem. Is that what it says? Now what does it say? It says they were reputed to be pillars. Now wait a minute. Look at here. 
James, just a few months ago, was criticizing his half-brother because he didn't even believe in him. Something took place between Galatians chapter 2 and John chapter 7, and I can tell you what it is. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And its effectiveness demonstrated in his life. He went from being a critic to being crucial. You know what crucial means? Crucial means that you can put weight on it. A pillar. He was a pillar. You know, big buildings have pillars in them. They have load-bearing columns. And by golly, James went from being critical to being a load-bearing column in the church of Jesus Christ. So that's transformation by grace, is it not? Check out number next. I think I got one more here, don't I? Yeah, I do. Because here's why it ought to have the place of primary importance. Because of its uh, supernatural, or because of its gracious power to transform the cowardly into the courageous, crowd into a church, transform critical into the crucial. Now, you probably expect in this next blank to be a C, ain't you? (laughs) To transform murderers into missionaries. Because that's what he did. Look what Paul says. Check out what Paul says in verse 8 through 11 as he kind of gives his resume. Here's what he says. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. you know what that means? Paul's, Paul's telling it lightly here. He was murdering folk who were identified with Jesus Christ. And you remember the story. He was headed down to Damascus to murder and and, and whip and humiliate and to do everything he could to believers down in that church down there. And on the way, he had an encounter that proved to be effective enough to change him from being a murderer to ultimately being the greatest missionary the planet's ever known. Son, that's only by grace, is it not? I mean... You know, there were some folks scratching their heads saying, what happened to this guy? And here's the answer. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Transformed him from being a murderer into being a missionary. And look what Paul says. I love this and I'm wrapping this thing up. Paul says in verse number 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Now let's stop right there. Paul's Paul's telling us how how to get beyond our past. Because so many people, even after they're saved, can't forgive themselves for some of the stuff that went on in their past. And I'm here to tell you that Paul drew a line that I no longer am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So here's what he's telling us about the grace of God. Here's what grace does. Two things and I'm done. Well, maybe three or four. Grace identifies. Grace identifies us. What do you think identified Paul? Whoever stood and read the eulogy at his funeral, what do you think they focused on as to what his identity was? You think they went all the way back to him holding the coats of the murderers while they stoned Stephen? I don't think so because grace so overshadowed that. Grace so took that away. Grace so transformed this murderer into a missionary until Paul says, it's my identity. Look at this. This is about who I am, our being. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
Grace, make no mistake about it, should be the primary identifying mark in our lives if we've received an effective gospel. Now let me ask you a couple questions. How are you identified? What are you known by? Are you identified by your profession? By what you do for a living? Are you identified by your hobbies? What you do in your fun time? Are you identified because of the family from which you come? Are you identified by the possessions that you have? Or are you identified by the grace of God? When folk look at you, do they say, I don't know what happened, but he ain't the same guy I knew five years ago. And I can't explain it. Must be grace. Grace identifies us. It's the primary marker of our identity as a person. I am who I am because of the grace of God. Here's how grace identifies us. Two subpoints, real quick. Are you ready? Because it's grace that regenerates us. That's just a big fancy word that means it's grace. Paul says it like this, For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any should boast, right? It is grace that comes to the rescue when you are a hell-bound dying sinner, dead in your trespasses and sins. Grace comes to you and gives you spiritual life. It's by grace. That's why it identifies us. Hey, can I just say this to you? If the regenerating encounter that you have with Jesus Christ isn't the primary watershed event in your life that separates everything on this side from everything on that side, that identifies you as a human being now, I would be very concerned. Because this is an effective gospel and that's what it does. Grace identifies us because after all, grace is what brings us to life spiritually. So not only does it regenerate us, but get this, grace totally refocuses us. Totally refocuses. Hey, here's what I was like before grace. Here's what I was like before I was born again, before an encounter with an effective gospel. Here's what I was doing. I had my life ambitions in the crosshairs of my life, and I was going to get what I want to get out of life come hell or high water. That's what I was going to do. And all of a sudden, after grace, I was no longer interested in building my kingdom because it's not about me anymore. Now it's about Him and His kingdom. So my life has been totally refocused. Whereas I was going this way, now I'm going this way because grace identifies me. Well, number next... Maybe two or three subpoints under this. I don't know. But anyway, here we go. Not only does grace identify us, but get this. Grace energizes us. Look what Paul says in verse number 10. And I put the wrong reference out there, so make that 11 a 10. He says this. His grace toward me did not prove vain. 
Here's our word again. You can just put in the word did not approve to be ineffective. 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 I think the, the term ineffective grace is an oxymoron. It can't happen. But Paul says his grace didn't prove to be ineffective. He's looking at those Corinthians and saying, it looks like whatever grace you received was ineffective for you. But he says, grace energizes me. So what does it mean? He goes on to explain what effective grace looks like in somebody's life. Check this out in verse number 10. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I underline this word, labored even more than all of them. Who's the them? Some of those people that he just mentioned in here that were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says grace energizes me and it causes me to work. Listen, I don't work for grace. I work because of grace. That's what he said. Look, I've got a huge theological problem with some of our brethren who claim that if you preach justification by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, that folk are going to become lazy and they'll never be kingdom oriented, never be kingdom focused. They'll live in sin because there's no motivation to clean themselves up. I have a huge theological problem with that. Because friend, that's not what grace does. That's a bad understanding of grace. Grace not only identifies us, it energizes us. And here's why I'm going to burn myself out for the glory of God as long as there's breath in my body. It's because I can't help it. Grace is like spinach to Popeye. It's my adrenaline. It keeps me going. Why in the world, Pastor Richie, do you preach with such passion and such energy? Because of the grace of God that's within me. I am what I am by His grace because it energizes me makes me labor for the glory of the one who graciously saved me. So for someone to say, Pastor Richie, you preach that grace and all of your folk are going to lose their salvation because they're not going to do anything. I want to say, what kind of gospel have you invented, son? Because that's not the effective gospel that glorifies the God who spoke it into existence. Now unto Him who is able to make you stand blameless in His presence, in glory, forever and ever. To Him be the glory. Amen. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, would you help us have a testimony like the Apostle Paul that the grace of God that was given to me was not given to me in vain. Lord, would you help us be identified by that grace? Help us be energized by that grace? And God, would you use this crowd that you've assembled in Bonifay, Florida for your great purposes? God, would you transform us into a church that's willing to march across this planet with the effective gospel that transforms people forever. I pray for those who are here today, God, that you're speaking to about becoming a part of this church. I pray, God, today grace would energize them and this would be the day that 
they would make what God's doing in their life known and become a part of this family. I pray for those, Lord, who, according to this passage, really may have never been born again because the gospel doesn't have a place of high importance in their life. And they cannot say that I am what I am by the grace of God. I pray today, Lord, you've opened their eyes and grace today would energize them and allow them by faith to receive the substitutionary atonement which Jesus gave on Calvary's cross when he died for our sins. Lord, whatever it is that you've said today in the midst of your people through the preaching of your word, God, would you bring it to fruition for the sake of an effective gospel. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Dr. John Wilson's up here on the front row. Colin Dollar's up here. Brother Cliff's not too far back. God said something today and you need to, by faith, take a step in that direction. In Jesus' name, won't you find one of these men and do that today?
Grace Church, do you remember where you were when you first had the gospel become effective in your life? Uh, for me, it's how the Lord does things. There's one person in the building that knew me before I became a Christian, and that's who I am introducing to you guys as a member here at Grace Church. So I'm going to ask Miss Brenda Humanis to come stand by me. And I'm going to tell you a funny story because that's going to keep me from crying. When I graduated um, from high school, Miss Brenda's family gave me a graduation present. So I wrote a, a, a thank you card because my stepmom was teaching me right. So at age 17, I write a thank you card to this sweet family for their present. And you ever think faster than you write? And you sometimes leave words, crucial words out? I, at the end of the letter, I wrote, I, I meant to write, I love you guys, signed John. And what was on the card, to my horror, was I love guys. <laughs> so Miss Brenda has known me for 25 years, and so I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, this, the dirt she's got on me now. Um, instead of you, you just hearing it from her, but it is a, a privilege, a, a, a joy to stand by this lady um, that is dear to my family. Um, you know, when you, when you have friends for 25 years, you're a, you're a blessed person, and it, what is encouraging to me um, is just when Miss Brenda, she, some of her texts that she'll send me is, I cannot get enough of the word. Um, looking up some of Dr. Allen's old sermons and re-listening to just old sermons and just the growth I've, I've seen in her in just in the last year and um, seeing how she loves her grace group, her community already and how she's already, I'm, I, I'm in that, that Cliff's, what is it, dog kennel? I'm in there. I don't ever, but I get to see how they pray for one another and how she's involved and it just, she wants to serve in Grace Kids and so um, it, it is a joy to be able to stand up here before you this morning, Grace Church, and present Miss Brenda to you to affirm her as a member here at Grace. If you would uh, join me by affirming her to the membership, will you say amen? Amen. 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 You're in. You're in. <laughs> hey, if you don't know Miss Brenda, please come hug her neck. Come introduce yourself. Um, she's a sweet, sweet lady, and it'll be a blessing to you. So come um, uh, shake her hand, and, uh, and Grace Church. The gospel is effective. We are not wasting our time. Uh, it is effective. So let's, let's uh, uh, do our part to tell others about him. Uh, Grace Church, you are sent.